my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I had a pretty massive failure about five or six years ago, and it was actually on Totino's. We were taking a pizza and we were going to move it from being a circle pizza to a rectangle pizza. The reasons we did that, our consumer research said, hey, this is a good idea. Our supply chain absolutely needed to do that. My gut initially was like, I don't know, this feels like such a big change. I kind of allowed myself to go down that path because when we did launch it, immediately the business dropped by about 9%. I was like, oh my God, I completely broke this business. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to another Work From Home episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Episode by episode, we dissect marketing and business, examining that special relationship between the analytics and the creativity. Today, we have someone who is an avowed practitioner of the combination of left brain and right brain. He calls those folks and people. His name, Brad Hironaga, Chief Brand Officer, North America for General Mills.
Brad grew up in the Pacific Northwest, a creative kid who loves sports and student government, too. He has worked on iconic brands and moved them from nostalgia to current and epic with great success. He has fully formed important insights about hiring and culture that help build a strong organization. He started his career in finance, including at Starbucks, went to the Midwest for his MBA at Michigan, and then discovered his true calling, marketing. He's one of the top thinkers in marketing today with visible successes to validate his theories. Brad, welcome. Bob, thanks so much for having me. I love that intro and hearing your voice makes it sound 10 times better. (laughs) Well, listen, we're going to dig into some real meaty stuff, but I first want to do our You in 60 Seconds feature. So you ready? I'm ready. Yes. Okay, here you go. You prefer sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Football or basketball? Basketball. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Seattle or Minneapolis? Seattle. Beach or mountains? Oh, beach, for sure. Nike or Adidas? Nike. Pizza or tacos? Mm, I will go with pizza. Marketing or finance? Marketing. Smartest person you know? My dad. First job? Babysitter. Favorite cereal? Lucky Charms. Who would play you in a movie? I'm going to take some liberties here. I'll say Ryan Reynolds. Title of your memoir? Unlocking Potential. Favorite music artist? I'm going to say Drake. Favorite Star Wars character? Bubba Fett. Favorite video game? Call of Duty. And what's one food you'd never eat? Mmm, probably blowfish. (laughs) That's a good choice. So let's jump in. For the past few weeks, we have really seen our society shaken to the core. We've seen broken consumer habits, and it's forced us all to examine ourselves and the world around us like probably we've never done before. As a marketer, how have you dealt with it? Our purpose as a company has been to serve the world by making food that it loves. It quickly shifted when COVID-19 really hit hard in March to changing the last word from loves to needs. And I think that's where we really started to have even more empathy with our consumers because it wasn't enough just to be marketing and selling anymore. It was really truly to understand what people were going through. You know, we're fortunate to be in an industry that has been one that people need even more as folks have shifted to home and and making more meals at home. And so our role to really play was to ensure that we could just get food made that people needed and make it as accessible and affordable and safe as possible. And so the first few weeks really were kind of a testament to our supply chain that they were able to really turn it on in a way that was able to really fill that demand. I was kind of awestruck really by the way that they worked. And we've talked a lot about frontline workers in different industries. Certainly the folks that work at our plants are part of that really heroic group. And so we've been doing our best to support that group as we've kind of understood what new demand looks like. It really started to change how we think about what our roles are. Our marketing philosophy is try to be action-led, action first, and then talk about it. And so how do we give people tips, ideas, tricks to be able to stretch their dollar and afford more food and make more things out of their pantry or refrigerator? People spending much more time with family, how do we help provide content that's much more about creating those kind of moments that you want with your kids or really teaching them how to cook for the first time? And so the pivot on how we've become much more human-centric and action-oriented in a way that feels really good as a marketer. It feels like we're doing our part to help. It's felt really good to be able to play that role, given all the challenges that we're facing right now. You know, I've seen some talk about General Mills' mission to solve the hunger gap. Can you talk a little bit about that? The hunger gap has always been something that, specifically as we look at North America, has been a challenge. 
I think within the last few months, that gap has accelerated and increased as people have lost jobs, as kids who actually relied on lunch and breakfast programs at school were no longer able to go to class. And so we've done some really great work in partnership with Feeding America and No Kid Hungry to really solve the problem of hunger. That's a role that General Mills is one of the biggest food manufacturers in the world doesn't take lightly. We need to play that role to solve that gap. And it also works into our employees too. We have tons of employees that give their time to volunteer at food banks and to do their part for their communities. And that's really been a part of the DNA of General Mills. So let's talk a minute about what this has done to the consumer. You were talking about kids learning to cook for the first time. How has the consumer behavior changed and how much of it do you think is permanent? I'd say the shifts have been really significant. One shift I'll talk with you a little bit about is just how people are shopping. Consumer packaged food industry shopping online has really kind of lagged a lot of other industries as people just haven't been as comfortable buying groceries and food through Amazon or Walmart or Kroger or whatever channel they were looking to buy through. The shift that we've started to see there has been a dramatic uptick, obviously, as people don't want to spend as much time in grocery stores or going out of their homes. That is something that we foresee sticking not just through this year, but for the foreseeable future and growing. Folks that may have been technology adverse or didn't want to try the experience now have kind of been forced into that. Certainly, there's going to be times when you want to go to a store and go to the market. But I also think once you experience how easy it is to buy online and the kinds of solutions that companies like General Mills can provide to consumers, it becomes really a great experience. At your core of it is technology. You know, here at iHeart, we found that it is greatly accelerated people's discovery that they could get the radio on a lot of other devices other than a radio device, doubling, tripling use on smart TVs, video game consoles, smart speakers, etc. What you're looking at is 10 years of technology adoption crammed into a few months. We see it in our business. Sounds like you're seeing in your business. What do you think that means overall for marketers? How do they have to adjust to that huge jump in technology adoption? We had fashioned ourselves a lot of times to say, hey, we're a technology company that sells food. The reality is that we still have a long way to go to really matching the kind of experiences that companies who are built out of technology already deliver to consumers. And so one of the things that we've been talking about lately is if you or I have a great experience buying a airline ticket or booking something on Airbnb or a piece of content that you enjoy watching through Netflix, if that experience is really great and remarkable then every other experience you have via technology is going to be held up to that level. That's what we're talking about in terms of our technology. It's no longer even close to being good enough for us to say, oh, well, this is how our competitive food brands are doing it. And we're about the same or a little better than them. We have to look at what the best experience is. Shifting to an experience-led mindset is really where marketing is going to go. And as we look internally at the way we're set up and the way that we work and maybe the talent and partners we have, there's really a tremendous opportunity for us to start to think differently about, do we have the right capabilities and the right kind of people in the right roles? Because we've gone from a very product-centric mindset to starting to move now into much more of a user-based mindset. I believe we're going to be going after talent and tech companies or agencies that have more of an expertise there to bring that in and really start to think about that language and embedding it in the way that we create experiences. I'm really excited about that because our brands are bigger than just products. They tell stories, but they also need to be about services. They need to elevate themselves up to experiences. So I'm going to get into some of that with you. But first, I'd like to go back in time to understand how you developed. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Where? In two places. I grew up in Portland and then just south of Seattle. And your dad was from Hawaii. Your mom was from the Pacific Northwest. And they were teachers. Is that right? 
They were, yeah. Both of them started off as teachers in their career. How having teachers as parents affected you? What kind of household was that like? First and foremost, it gave me a much deeper empathy for people that have chosen that profession is pretty outstanding. And the other piece of it was in our house, everything kind of had a learning agenda in mind. There was always learning and always opportunities to learn. And really this push of always being curious, asking questions was good and okay. And trying to figure out answers to those questions was a big part of our childhood. I think my sister and I really benefited from that. My dad eventually transitioned out and went into more of a corporate business career in human resources. My mom always stayed involved with school. She substitute taught. She created an art literacy program. I feel really fortunate to have grown up in that way and been able to bring a lot of that curiosity and constant thirst for trying to learn and figure out what drives people and what makes brands interesting and where trends are going. And I think that's part of a marketer's role is to not only create curiosity for our function or for other marketers, but really for the whole company. How can we create a learning mindset for our whole organization so we all think that way? Let me jump a little bit and stay in the same time period. You grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in probably the hippest place in the country then, the Pacific Northwest. Can you paint a picture of that time and place? My high school and college years were Gig Harbor, Tacoma, and Seattle. It's all areas in Washington State. Probably in that moment, kind of the height of where music was really literally being created. Growing up in the environment of gray, cloudy, Seattle days where everybody wore flannel and had long hair and coffee was becoming a big thing. And we were all getting introduced to bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. It was awesome. That music scene and that vibe and that part of the 90s and into the 2000s, I mean, it really had a pretty transformational imprint on the city of Seattle and in the Northwest because a band like Pearl Jam... They were out and about in the community in a way that made you feel really proud to be part of Seattle. And it was just a fun period of time to be a part of that. So you talked about babysitting. What other jobs did you have as a kid? I mentioned babysitting as a first because I was really proud of the fact that most of the times girls did that role. And I had neighbors in our neighborhood who had boys and they said, hey, do you want to be interested in babysitting? And so I did that. And I learned a ton about <laughs> what to do and what not to do in raising kids. The other jobs that I had, I did a lot of landscaping work. So I was outside a lot and I enjoyed that. I had a job all through college in the summers and I worked at one of the best named companies in the world. It's called Tacoma Screw Products. It had as many different kinds of fasteners and screws and nuts and bolts that you can ever imagine. More than I ever thought was possible. I'm the opposite of being a handy guy. Like I'm not good with that stuff. But every summer, my best friend and I would work a different department. So we were working in receiving and then we work in shipping and then we worked the front desk and then We'd work the forklift and we'd move pallets. I got to experience a whole business and see it from every angle. That was probably one of my more formative years. And then my senior year in college, I was the vice president of our school. That was a full-time, pretty much a full-time job. That just provided a ton of leadership opportunities. We had a, about a half million dollar budget that we were responsible for. We were responsible for bringing in entertainment in bands. Like we brought in Foo Fighters, which was a huge deal. And we were also responsible for all the other clubs that were on campus. And just a great opportunity for me to learn how to lead a team, how to run a business, how to have a budget. And so those experiences were really formative for me as I got into my next phase of my career. Did you ever think about brands or marketing as a kid? Did that ever go through your brain? I have been in love with brands probably since I was about five years old. The reason was, you know, one of the best brands probably in the world growing up right outside of Portland was Nike. And because I love sports and because of the location, I remember being pretty explicit at a really young age. My parents would always joke with me that I had to have certain clothes that had the swoosh on it or I wouldn't wear it. 
I laugh about that now because I still am the same way. I still love Nike and I still love that brand. And the other great part about Seattle was just the explosion of companies that happened there in the 90s. Microsoft, and then you had Starbucks, and you had Amazon, and on and on and on. And so when Starbucks hit the scene, and I eventually got a job there, I was super excited because I got to see Howard Schultz talk a lot about his belief of the Starbucks brand and the experience that he had when he was in Europe and how he wanted to bring it to the world. And his aspiration was to be a bigger, more impactful brand than Coke. I got to be a part of that as that was really starting to form and become bigger. It just reaffirmed that's what I wanted to do. And so eventually when I went back to school, I chose Michigan because it was known for marketing. It's eventually why I chose this field because I just love the idea of brands. I love the emotion they have with them. And I love that people can be loyal and advocate for brands. I'm very fortunate to be working on the brands that I get to today. Let's jump into Michigan. You're in the Pacific Northwest and you decide I'm going to get my MBA at Michigan. Now you said it's because of marketing, but that must have been a hell of a culture shock. <laughs> it totally was. But the program that they had there was really focused on a few things. One was teamwork. You're going to work in teams than everything you do. So I love that collegial feel. The other part of the program that I like, it was actually quite blue collar in a lot of ways. The kinds of students they wanted to attract were the kinds of people that would roll their sleeves up and really dig into a problem. I love that idea of like getting into something deep and not sitting out of it from above. And so those values really matched up really well what I wanted to do in addition to it being great in marketing, international business, and some other programs I was interested in. It's been an amazing alumni network. I love going back to Ann Arbor. It's an amazing town. And so I'm really proud to have gone to school there. And I try to represent that because they have a lot of values that are aligned with mine. To have my brands, they're a great brand in and of themselves. So why did you think you needed an MBA? You were doing finance, Starbucks, you were some nice places. What was it that said, I need the MBA? I felt like to transition into the next level of leadership, that it would be an accelerator for me. I felt like I wanted to do something different and I wanted to challenge myself and I wanted to be around new people that I could go and learn from. I didn't know about brand management as a career path specifically when I was going back. I knew I wanted to do marketing more broadly. But as soon as I stepped foot on campus and I went to like one employee event, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm sold. Like, this is what I want to go do. What it does give you is a different kind of perspective across all these opportunities that you're probably you're not going to run into that many times in your life. A network of people that are massively talented that I still stay in touch with many of them that are doing amazing things in their career in other places. And just time to reflect a little bit. There is a fast pace to it. You're learning, you're going to classes, you're joining clubs, all that stuff. But stepping back, you're like, okay, I can actually reflect on my life and what path do I want to go on? What did you get out of the Midwest that you use today and has formed sort of the basis for your view on marketing? The truth is, even though I've grown to love Minneapolis, it's a wonderful city. In the back of my mind, I'm still very much West Coast. Like I still feel like I represent the West Coast in my beliefs and in my vibe and what I try to think about. And so I will say what I love about the Midwest, though, I've been in cities like Ann Arbor and Minneapolis, which are really progressive, really thoughtful cities with diversity from different places. So there actually is quite a bit of diverse thinking and learning that happens in these places that I've been able to be in. And then in a city like Minneapolis, you don't have to go very far to get really rural. And I think the ability to be in places where you get a different kind of outlook in life is really helpful to provide different perspective as a marketer. I think it makes me a more appreciative marketer, the different kinds of people that are out there. But you know, it's interesting, a lot of these CPG companies, this has changed. But when I was in school, it was like, the next thing you do after you go get your MBA, if you want to be like a really great marketer is you go to a CPG and you learn how to do the marketing there. And I still think there's a lot of credibility to that. But certainly a Procter & Gamble or a Frito-Lay, PepsiCo, or some of these other companies, General Mills, 
you were going to get immersed in like how to think really strategically about marketing and segmenting and targeting and positioning and building great brands. And so those fundamentals are transferable no matter where you end up. Marketing at those companies too means a little bit something different. When you go there, you got to learn the whole business. I've gotten this job and I've been able to meet other CMOs and talk about their roles. And a lot of times they talk about marketing and the definition of it can mean so many different things at different places. They'll say, well, I do marketing and then we get into it. They really are talking about advertising and media. And while I view that as part of marketing, I also, because of the way that we set it up at General Mills, it's so much broader than that. We have to know the P&L, you have to know the forecast, you have to know the supply chain, you got to know the consumer and the brand in addition. And so I think that breadth is what I've really come to love about the job. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my from this idea of what do, is that? Is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time... 
with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Now let's hear some more from my conversation with Brad Hiranaga. On this podcast, I always am interested in how people got their break into the business story. You get your MBA from prestigious school, Michigan, and you wind up at General Mills. How? Part of the benefit of going to a school like a Michigan or some of these other great schools that are out there is, you know, companies come to recruit there. I interned at PepsiCo and down in Frito-Lay in Dallas, and I loved it. So I was sold. I was like, I want to do this career. I want to go into brands. The benefit for me to come to Mills and the opportunity there was that it has so many brands in so many categories. And I thought, okay, if I can learn how to market food, which is one of the most intimate things where you have to build trust with people to put something in their body, then it will pay off in whatever I market in the future. So I actually started out in a role that was in food service in restaurant accounts. I didn't even know General Mills sold that stuff. And so when I came in the door, they were like, hey, you're going to be working on restaurant accounts and helping support Subway and McDonald's. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm not working on Cheerios? And they're like, no, no, we do channels and that's your first assignment and you work at Starbucks. So it's a good fit. But I went in that job and I learned so much about sales and about understanding the channels and about restaurants. And I've been fortunate to do that. And then I've worked on big brands like Pillsbury and small brands like Betty Crocker and epic brands like Totino's and delicious brands like Old El Paso. And those kind of diversity of experiences have really been such a benefit. They've allowed me to see different consumers, different brands. And then I've had the opportunity as well to just come into roles that were off the beaten path. What came to me about five years into my career was an opportunity to go lead a digital team. And at the time, it was very ambiguous what that meant. I had done some digital marketing. We had some success on Pillsbury. And so I said, sure, I'm going to go form whatever this is. It was more an opportunity to really come in and build a team. There was already this great talent that was in these jobs. And so I was able to take them and bring back my commercial understanding and put them into roles that helped them start to transform the thinking of how we did brand building. The CMO that worked at the company, his name is Mark Addix, and he's since retired. Amazing marketer, a legend. He's always been a huge mentor for me. He gave me some opportunities to really take that project and lean into it and said, hey, we got this thing called the future marketing. We need someone to drive it. You get the commercial side, you get the digital side. You seem to have an understanding of where we need to go, like help craft this. And so that's really been my career. The last 10 years has been figuring out how to do that and having a ton of failure along the way, but like really starting to plot what does the future look like and how do we bring not just one or two of our brands to it, but all of our brands to it. And all of our marketers there and all of our agency partners to that place. You've talked about moving some of the most trusted, iconic brands, which your company is very well known for, from nostalgia to epic and current. Why and how did you do that? And talk a little bit about the internal pressure you must have gotten not to mess with the classics. 
One of the opportunities in a brand that was kind of a sleepy brand, but was doing okay when I got to work on it was Totino's. And that's a almost a billion dollar brand. It sells pizza rolls and pizza. When I inherited it, it had been doing a lot of pretty standard kind of marketing. It was an after school snack. It was targeted towards moms. It was doing fine. And so, you know, when things are going okay, it's not always the easiest time to come in and say, let's do something different. But what I started to see right away was that there was this huge opportunity and the brand had dabbled in other places before. It had sponsored the X Games. It had partnered with snowboarding athletes and it had built this kind of community of people who love the brand. We just said, hey, we've got this huge opportunity we're not tapping into. How do we experiment with this consumer group who actually loves the brand? And how do we tap into that insight and really start to build this branding culture? Because otherwise it's not relevant. It never stands out. No one notices it. We went with that mindset into got to do what we got to do day to day and we have to craft the future. And in that future crafting, we were really kind of set free. So we went into all these different passion places around the brand. We explored comedy. We explored Comic-Con. We explored passion projects around gaming. We even explored stuff around marijuana culture. And we followed the consumer and where they went. We wanted Totinas to really be epic around leisure, like championing anything you could do to live the most leisurely lifestyle that you could. And so we created this brand idea called Live Free Couch Hard. And everything was built around owning the couch. So it made our partnerships with people like Twitch and other kinds of video games like Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed and Xbox. It made it really like a seamless thing. And that's what our consumers were already doing anyway. We did it in a very absurd, irreverent, but very self-aware way. And we were able to craft a brand that started to break through. It's given new life to it. We were able to really flip the brand over and say, okay, we still got to talk to moms about making sure they're buying the product. But really this brand at its heart is for this, we call them independent, but like these people who are 17, 21 years old, knowledgeable about culture. They want things when they want it. Like, let's make the brand for them. What I'm most proud about is that we're able to use that success to break through old, old, old traditions at General Mills that needed to evolve. We weren't allowed to advertise on rated R movies. We weren't allowed to be in certain cable programs because it was too mature. We weren't allowed to market around things like marijuana. And that's not right for every brand and certainly not for a lot of our brands that have younger audiences, but for the audiences we were going after and for how pinpointed and targeted we could get, it was right. We were able to break through that way and really start to lead the company to think much more progressively. When you say they had rules that you couldn't do it, who sets those rules? Were they set long ago and no one questioned them? Or are they set by committee or the CEO or the CMO? How do things like that happen in a company that has the kind of longevity that General Mills has? I think some of them are traditionally set and no one questions them. Old rules like that happens in a lot of places. We also have a responsible marketing committee that's very effective and looks across all of things that may not comply with our marketing policies. Our lawyers and our marketers that are on that committee, I'm one of the people now on it, ironically, are pretty flexible in terms of the thinking. Like We're constantly evolving what that looks like. But I will tell you, going to that committee five, six, seven, eight years ago, marketers would get scared. They'd be like, I don't want to take this and then get shut down, or I don't want to take this and it's going to look bad if it doesn't work. Instead of putting it the other way, like, let's go to that committee and like, let's build on it and come with new ideas. It was kind of seen the other way. But it took some things like Totino's running into things and our team was awesome. And they were like, you know what? We see ourselves kind of the renegade and we're the change agent. And to be honest, I had lots of great support from other leaders around the company that were like, dude, go, like, push it, push it, try it, be different. Like, we don't have enough of that. I won't name the lawyer, but I had one lawyer that was like telling me one day, he's like, we don't get sued enough. You should try to get a sued more. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm gonna take that advice completely. Nevertheless, that was a good period of time for us to really test those parameters. And what we found was that the company was ready to evolve. It just needed some brands to kind of step up and, and push on some old rules. As you move forward, you have to take a lot of chances. No one gets it right all the time. 
everybody's got failures. What was your biggest failure with a brand and why? And what did you learn from it? I had a pretty massive failure about five or six years ago. And it was actually on the same brand as on Totino's. We were taking a pizza and we were going to move it from being a circle pizza to a rectangle pizza. At the time, our consumer research said, hey, this is a good idea. Our supply chain absolutely needed to do that because the equipment we had needed to be redone and we didn't have enough capacity to make the pizza we were making at the time. So we needed to replace it. And that was the way to do it and meet the demand that we had of consumers. I inherited that project kind of halfway through. And my gut initially was like, I don't know, this feels like a, such a big change. Like, how are we going to make this change? And then seeing the research and talking to the supply chain, the reason to do it, I, I kind of allowed myself to go down that path. Because when we did launch it, immediately the business dropped by about 9%. I was like, oh my God, I completely broke this business. That's such a big decline, especially in CPG. If I would have followed my gut a little bit more, I think I would have prepared for the launch of it in a more aggressive way to help people make that transition. Fortunately, we were able to do some reactions and do some marketing tactics and bring people back along. And the business is now bigger than it's ever been. But at the time and the crisis around that and the fear of it, because that's one of our biggest businesses, I felt like I messed up. You mentioned at the beginning, like there's this left brain, right brain balancing act that we all have to do. I think in that instance, I leaned way too heavily into logicking myself into thinking it was the right thing versus feeling that it was the right thing. And so I always try to find that balance based off of that learning that in that instance, I definitely was off balance making that decision. Let's talk about left brain, right brain. When I was in college and was a sociology major, spending a lot of time in what is now called research or data, I was cautioned by somebody that research is not policymaking. At best, it conditions your gut to make a gut decision. You talk a lot about left brain, right brain. Indeed, this podcast is about math and magic, that mix that seems to be when you get it right, create the great successes. Talk to me a little bit about that and what role that plays in both your organization and in your own view on marketing. I really like the way that you talk about research. That makes a ton of sense to me. What we're looking for within marketers in our organization is people that can do both those things. Or if they're firmly in one camp or the other, we know where they kind of fit. We did some team building with my leadership team a few months ago. They basically put us into a color wheel. I ended up being on the color wheel, I think, yellow, which was about ideas. There was other people in our group that were green, which is about people first. There was another group that was more about command first and red. And there was the last group was blue, which is more about logic and numbers first. And what we found was that a lot of people in our group were much more balanced, but in most other functions in our company, people were much more blue, which is like, I need the numbers. And then they were red and I make the command. Knowing that, like I'm much more in the idea state, but I know that people need to see that first. And so when I want to sell an idea, it's helpful for me to have that context so that I can sell it with the numbers or with the quantitative or with the KPIs up front. I think a lot of time, great ideas from really creative people in companies get lost because the people ultimately making the decision or holding the pen to the actual checkbook don't understand how it drives the business. And so ultimately, you have to have both. We're really trying to push our teams to have that experience where they like they understand the business and commercial side enough of it that it has to make business sense. But then it also has to have, I love what you say, the magic sense to it. What's, what's the sense of the idea that's going to be so creatively amazing and remarkable that people are going to like fall in love with it and talk about it. So that's part of the end mindset is can you bring the logic with that creative essence of the idea? Do you think there are many people actually who can do both? Or do you think most people are either analytical or creative? It's a little bit of a unique trait to be completely balanced. I think everyone kind of leans one way or the other. I think there's also a place for everybody too. It's incumbent upon leaders to be able to figure out the right mix of those people and build that on their teams. 
another way of looking at ideas is this concept we talk a lot about it's like orchestration like how do you orchestrate an insight into a strategy into an idea into an activation and learn about it and who on our team can see the bigger chessboard and all the pieces and be able to kind of orchestrate them beautifully to that execution it's hard to find that talent people that can do that and I think that's true in marketing. I think that's true in supply chain or finance or any of their functions or industries that you might be in. But the great thing is, I think there's an ability to find people that can do that and put them in the right positions and then give them the people around them that are maybe a little more analytical or maybe more creative. Another interesting spin on this organization that we've been talking about is you know the people in the company that are amazing disruptive thinkers. And you also know the people in the company that are amazing executors. And you need both of those things. But some of the most often forgotten people in those companies are the connectors that connect the dots between the two. We don't necessarily see them. They kind of make it happen, but they don't get the reward for getting it done or the reward for coming up with the idea. Understanding as a leader, like I need all those things. How do I get them? You need them all. Let's talk a little bit about your views on things. I'm at iHeart, number one audio company in America. I have a bias, but I've been particularly interested in your comments about shifting more resources to audio, radio, podcast. Why did radio get forgotten? I think because video more easily conveys a marketing idea to people in a boardroom. Even today, when you're going to go show a marketing concept to people, it's really easy just to be like, okay, here's a 15 second video that I want to show you so you get the idea. I also think that TV as a medium, even still today, as people continue to migrate into other channels, hold such a significant weight because of what people think about television. And it's been interesting that how if you want to actually have the most reach, you actually want to go into radio. I know for us today, when we talk about an idea, where does this idea need to go? Where can it add joy or solve a problem in people's life? And that leads us to much more holistic thinking of ideas that a lot of times it's like, well, this is a voice thing because we actually want it to be solved through either a voice command or it actually has a much more musical piece where we want people to listen to it and have that emotion. When we can center it that way, it allows us to be a lot more channel agnostic or pick the right roles for channels as they come forward. But certainly the push that we've had the last couple of years, and I think you guys have done a really great job of getting brands to think about this, is to really understand in what ways then, if you're reconsidering radio and sound and audio, does your brand need to show up in those spaces? People are multitasking. You can't leave out sound and radio and just focus on video and vice versa. And so how do those things even work together? And that's where we've done a lot of work to advance ourselves of like, what is our mnemonic? What is our sound architecture? How do we want to sound? And I'm excited about that because that's to me where we've had more of a gap than we should have in our plans over the last number of years. It's interesting to me, having spent a lot of years in TV, I think if TV is America's hobby, radio's been America's companion. We keep people company. Other companies besides yours like P&G has gone from probably three or four years ago, not even being in the top 200 radio advertisers. So I think last year they were number one or number two. So there's definitely a trend moving here. And then, of course, we finally, in radio, have a new shiny toy called podcasting. It's really taken the world by storm. How do you think about podcasting? It's elevated to a level where, you know, we used to talk about what shows we watch. And now in conversations, people are talking about what podcasts they listen to. And it's become a cultural currency in a way because the topics are so diverse. There's the intimacy that I know you've talked a lot about that you have. It's that one-to-one connection where I can just listen to someone talk and I feel like they're talking to me individually versus a, a show or a movie where it's much broader for everybody. To me, there's a ton of potential in that. And a lot of our brands are moving that direction. They're figuring out, okay, what ways can we show up? 
how do we continue to push our brands to show up in those spaces really creatively and use those dynamic channels in ways that they haven't been used before? I'm super excited about that. The podcast space for us is something we're highly interested in doing more and more work in. Let's talk a second about TV. CPG and TV synonymous. TV has always been the foundation of most CPG campaigns. And yet now we have all these great scripted TV shows moving to subscription service and not being available on ad-supported TV. How has that changed the thinking about television and the opportunities for the products you have? I think it changes almost day by day, especially in the space of different formats and platforms that are popping up all over the place. What does that mean? We're still pretty diverse in where we try to invest in and TV is still a part of that. But it goes back to what are our consumers doing? Where are they spending time and where are they going to be receptive to things that we can provide to them? In some of our brands to really kind of recraft the role of what advertising actually is. And it's probably going actually back to, you know, you talked a little about Parker and Gamble, but back even to the days of when they were creating soap operas to run their heads between. There's a lot of opportunity for us to tell different stories with our characters, with our consumers, that we could do a lot for ourselves to shift the thinking of what that means. How do we start to shift this to stories and content that's useful and enjoyable and interesting? We've been in conversations with lots of different kinds of creators, some in agencies, some in Hollywood, some in production. And like, how can we think about these assets and this IP differently? And certainly you've seen things with like Lego and I think toy companies have done it really well, crafting movies and series and all those types of things. We're still kind of early stages with where that's going, but I think we have to go that direction. Let's jump to some advice. How should people think about hiring? You built some really interesting, cutting-edge teams. What's your secret sauce there? I think the first thing that if you're responsible for leading a team is to be really reflective and open with yourself about what you're great at and what you're not great at. I've come to terms with things that I'm not good at over time. And knowing the kinds of people that you need on teams, both from a talent and expertise perspective, and strengths that offset things that I don't have has really been a big part of my philosophy over time. The second piece is I love to hire for diversity. And I mean that partially in terms of diversity of ethnicity and preferences and all that kind of thing. But I also mean that in diversity of experience, people who have had experiences in different industries or agencies or in different career paths, those people I feel like make really good partners because they see the world through different lenses and had experiences they can bring to the table. And then the last part of it is people who are nice people. I've worked on teams where one jerk can throw off the whole dynamic of the team. So holding fast the values of being a good person kind of one another, I think is really important in building the right chemistry. And I'll be honest, I mean, the current team I've got, I'm really happy about it. It's taken time to get it to a place where it's as high performing as it could be or as it should be. If you could give some advice to your 21-year-old self, what advice would that be? I would say never operate out of fear of making the wrong choice. I think a lot of times when you're at that age, you feel like, okay, I got to make the right choice at the right time. And I think life has a way of guiding you down paths that you're meant to go down. At the time, I felt like I was way more in control probably than I really was. And honestly, like getting back to a place where I could have been a little more present, a little more accepting of the way things were going, not trying to control everything would have made life, I think, a little bit easier along the way. And the other part I would have probably told myself is don't be afraid to take big swings at things. I feel like I have over my career here and there, but I think more consistently, like trying those big things and failing potentially is totally fine. And actually, like I look at that now, I'm like, I have a different perspective on that at my age than I did back then, which is like failure is actually really productive and good. 
back then I didn't want to fail. I wanted to look like I was doing everything right all the time. And that's just impossible. We end each episode by giving some shout outs. Instead of our usual focus on marketing people, let's focus on just marketing, math and magic, data analytics, and the creative. What's your favorite marketing success, your company or anywhere else, built on data and analytics, driven by that? I will tell you, we have made some really big strides in data and analytics and technology in general. We have a couple of different platforms. One is like Pillsbury.com and BettyCrocker.com, which are basically recipe and meal solution sites and platforms, but also our box tops for education platform. The way that that works is once people sign up for the app and they scan their receipts, they're able to localize, personalize the schools that they want to give money to. What's really cool for us is that as we're able to look at that, it gives us the data to be able to say, okay, what kind of things are these folks buying that they would value more of so they can donate more to their schools? We're really starting to use that information to give people more customized, personalized solutions so that it's less of things that they wouldn't want and more of things that they're really valuing. This concept of moving from mass marketing to one-to-one at mass, I think is starting to happen, which back to your point on radio is another thing that I love. It feels much more one-to-one at mass when you think about radio. I'm excited about it because personalized experiences for people, for a big CPG scaled company that has 95% household penetration is really hard to conceptualize. So we needed the data and we needed the personalization ability to activate behind it. And we're starting to do that. So let's go to... The other side of it, creative. Do you have a success that you think about, that you admire, that came off just sheer creativity? Somebody had a brilliant idea and just did it. This is going to sound massively simple, which I guess sometimes the best ideas are. Our Cheerios team has done some amazing work over the years, and that business has been on fire the last couple of years. They have really started to embrace this benefit that's always existed in the brand, which has been about heart health. It's a very simple thing that the marketing teams and the or research and development teams came back with. is like, hey, did you know that we can actually make Cheerios in the shape of hearts? And they launched this idea, which is just all around like heart-shaped Cheerios. And again, super simple creative idea, but had an amazing impact on the business. And an action like that then allowed us to lock all sorts of different ways in on creative and content and partnerships and ways to make people who are wanting to extend their lives longer and live a healthier life, do it in a way that the product brought it fully around. That to me, it is a great push into creativity and done really simply in a really elegant way was really cool. Brad, great conversations, even though it's by phone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking to you. I really appreciate it. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Brad. One, build your business for today and tomorrow. At a company with a huge legacy like General Mills, You need to make sure you're meeting today's demand while preparing for tomorrow's marketplace. Two, connect with consumers you already have. When Brad learned that video gamers already liked the Totino's brand, he marketed directly to them and sales grew even bigger. Three, hire people who are connectors. As Brad says, you need creative and analytical types on every team, but don't forget to have people who can bring everyone together. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time.
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. 